Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This week, we are continuing our Storygraph Reading Around the World mini-series, where I talk about books that I read for the Reading Around the World Challenge. This week's book is Next Year in Havana by Chanel Cleeton, which, of course, is the book that I read for the Cuba prompt. Before we get into our discussion, I am going to issue a spoiler alert, a spoiler warning. We are going to be spoiling the entire book today. Everything in this book will be spoiled. Well, all of the things that people usually care about at any rate. So please keep that in mind if you are planning to read this book or if you think you might want to read this book at some point in the future. Again, the book is next year in Havana. So spoiler alert, spoiler warning, you have been warned. So Next Year in Havana is a book that I was excited to read, actually. It's been on my TBR for a long time, even before I joined this reading challenge. And I was really excited to finally have an excuse to read it. This is a historical fiction book about a family who leaves Cuba for Miami when the Castro regime comes to power, and then years later, a descendant of the family goes to Cuba to lay her grandmother's ashes to rest. And of course, while she's there, she uncovers secrets about her family's past. This book came out in 2018, and it seems to have been a big deal when it came out. It was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick and it has literal pages of praise at the beginning of the ebook, including this quote from one of my favorite historical fiction authors, Kate Quinn. A flat out stunner of a book at once, a dual timeline mystery, a passionate romance, and peon, to the tragedy and beauty of war-torn Cuba. The story of sugar heiress Elisa watching Cuba fall into revolution as Castro rises is intertwined with the modern-day tale of Elisa's daughter Marisol as she returns to Cuba after Castro's death. That should be Elisa's granddaughter Marisol. Now, I copied this down by hand, so that may just be my mistake. I... I rather doubt that that mistake is in the ebook, but who knows? Either way, that should be Alyssa's granddaughter, Marisol. Both women fall for firebrand revolutionaries, but Cuba itself emerges as their true love interest, threatening to break both women's hearts as Alyssa and Marisol each grapple with what it is to be Cuban, what it is to be in exile, and how to live and love in a homeland riven by revolution. Simply wonderful. 
Again, those are the words of Kate Quinn. So, like I said, this book had a lot of hype, and that definitely influenced me. It's the reason that I picked this book up in the first place and added it to my TBR, and it's the reason that I was really excited to read it. I was envisioning, possibly, another favorite historical fiction read of the year. I was envisioning a book that would break my heart. I was envisioning a book that I would recommend to everyone, including you, my podcast listeners. And unfortunately, having actually finished the book next year in Havana, well, that's not really what I got. So let's talk about the book I actually read and why, on the whole, it was so disappointing, honestly. I would classify it as the most disappointing book that I read for this challenge, which is partially why I chose it for a deep dive episode. Whenever I read a particularly disappointing book, I often get this urge to talk about it, to break down why exactly it was disappointing. And the thing about this book, as with so many books that disappoint me, the thing about it is that I can see how much potential it had to be a book I really enjoyed. So, Let's break this thing down. Let us discuss next year in Havana. Because this isn't a bad book, and to prove that, I am going to start with the strengths that I found in this book. But before we do that, before we get any further into the discussion, I am going to need to do a quick recap of the book. As a reminder, again, this is a spoiler-filled deep dive episode. So, this is one of those historical fiction books where we have a dual timeline going on, which is a pretty common narrative structure for these types of historical fiction stories. The past timeline in Next Year in Havana is centered around Alyssa, a sugar heiress living in Cuba in the late 1950s. When the revolution breaks out, Alyssa and her family eventually decide to escape to Miami. The present timeline focuses on Marisol, Alyssa's granddaughter, who is visiting Cuba for the first time to lay Alyssa's ashes to rest. Marisol, while she's in Cuba, discovers that Alyssa was secretly in love with a revolutionary named Pablo, who is actually her biological grandfather, but he died in battle. Marisol also falls in love with Lewis. Lewis is a university professor who is outspoken about the dark side of modern day Cuba. Lewis ends up being arrested, which is not great, but guess who rescues him? That's right, Pablo is actually alive and he is now a high-ranking government official. Pablo gets Louis out of jail, Louis escapes with Marisol back to Miami, they live happily ever after the end. Okay, so now we can get into the discussion, which is going to be a, a bit of a compliment sandwich. We are going to start with the things I liked, 
Then we are going to be deep diving into the parts I didn't like. And then finally, we are going to go into how I think this book could have been a stronger read. The book that I thought I was going to read. So the strengths. Let us start with the writing because I, I do think that the writing is one of the strengths of this book. Next Year in Havana is a debut novel, and the most interesting part of many debut novels, though not all, of course, is that it's very often clear what the author was thinking when they were writing the book. And I, I think it's pretty clear that when the author was writing this book, Next Year in Havana, she was very much thinking about how to write a pretty book. A book with lyrical, beautiful, heartfelt writing. It was very clearly a central focus during the writing and editing process. Now, the outcome of this effort, the actual writing itself, to be honest, it's a bit of a mixed bag. When you're reading the book, you often end up feeling that it's a bit overwritten, if that makes sense, like a bit too much effort went into the writing. One of the biggest hallmarks of impressive writing is how effortless it often seems. And you can definitely tell in Next Year in Havana how much effort went into pretty much every single sentence. This is a book where the author agonized over word choice and sentence structure and metaphors, and it definitely shows. But like I said, this is a debut, so I'm going to cut this author some slack. For a first time effort, the writing is definitely good, definitely promising, and there are moments when I do think that the author's talent shines through. Here's one example, and this is Marisol narrating a conversation with her great aunt Beatriz. Well, she, she's telling us about a conversation that she had with her great aunt Beatriz. There, that's more clear. Her gaze narrows as she takes in my appearance. You're in love. She says the word cautiously, as though there's a world of danger contained there. As though it's a word that could topple governments conquer kingdoms, lay siege to everything in its path. She says it as if she knows a thing or two about bargaining with love and isn't a satisfied customer. And here is another example of strong writing, and this time Alyssa is reminiscing about the past. If I close my eyes, I can almost see it. If I look straight ahead, my gaze fixed on the point beyond the horizon, I imagine I do. There's a girl in a white dress, strolling along the Malasson, a white silk rose clutched in her hand, her dark hair blowing in the breeze. And there's a boy, he's taller, older, his head slightly bent as he leans into her, as he strains to hear what she says over the sounds of the city, the honking of horns, the laughter of people passing them by. She wants to laugh too, but the thudding in her chest robs her of the emotion. And instead, she feels something portentous, like the moment before a storm rolls in over the water. It's in the air around them, 
carried on the wind, hope, anticipation, hoping. He will kiss her and everything will change. They will march from the mountains to the sea and everything will change. The girl is now in a pink dress, her figure altered by motherhood and time. The white rose left in a box, buried in a backyard in Havana for when she returns. Now, I don't like everything about that excerpt. There's definitely some clunky moments in there, but I do really love these two lines and I included the rest mostly for context. He will kiss her and everything will change. They will march from the mountains to the sea and everything will change. That is the kind of emotionally intelligent writing that makes me really see the potential in this author. And like most authors, I, I am sure that, you know, she will improve over time. I'm, I'm sure she's written other books since then, and I'm sure the writing is even better in those, you know? Another big strength that I see in this book is its exploration of Marisol's relationship to her Cuban heritage, the way that she grapples with whether or not she feels Cuban, whether or not she is Cuban. I think that this is a struggle that a lot of children of immigrant parents grapple with at some point in their lives. And of course, in Marisol's case, this struggle is complicated by the complexities inherent in the circumstances of her family's exile and the reality of actually returning to a Cuba that has very much been changed by the events of the past 50 years. There's this conversation, for example, between Marisol and her love interest, Louis, that I, I actually really like. Oh, and, and I say conversation, but this is mostly Marisol monologuing. I came here to learn about my family's history, to find the perfect place to spread my grandmother's ashes. But now I'm more confused than ever. When my plane touched down, I thought I'd come home. I'm as Cuban as I am American, as I am Spanish, and yet, until now, I've never been here. I don't have a tangible connection to this place. My grandmother, my great aunts, kept Cuba alive for me, and now my grandmother's gone, her sister Isabel deceased, my remaining great aunts growing older, and my sense of being Cuban is slipping through my fingers. Yes. There's a strong Cuban community in South Florida, and I speak Spanish and ring in the new year with grapes and a bucket of water and eat lechon asado and listen to Cecilia Cruz. But there's an aimlessness to it all. I'm not grounded in anything. My feet didn't touch Cuban soil until I was 31 years old. And now that I'm here, you've all moved on. There's a modern Cuba now with a rich history and emerging cultures and experiences. And I'm not part of that. None of my family are. We left and we haven't been able to return and we're stuck in stasis in the United States, always waiting, always hoping, wondering, praying that we would wake up 
and see a headline on the news that Fidel had died, that the government has admitted this was a terrible mistake, that things will go back to the way they were. As exiles, that hope is embedded in the very essence of our soul, taught from birth. Next year in Havana, it's the toast we never stop saying, because the dream of it never comes true. And if it does one day, what then? There are Russians in the home my ancestors built. What will we return to? Is it even our country anymore? Or did we give it up when we left? I'm trying to understand where I fit in all of this. I take a deep breath, the pressure building in my chest. I walk down these streets and I look out to the sea and I want to feel as though I belong here. But I'm a visitor, a guest in my own country. Louis takes my hand. Then you know what it means to be Cuban, he says. We always reach for something beyond our grasp. I'm not a huge fan of Lewis's response here. It feels a bit pat and dishonest, but I do really like Marisol's internal conflict. The way she tries to work through her complicated feelings towards Cuba throughout this book. And I think that's probably at least in part due to the emotional truth here, since the about the author portion of the book has this bit. Originally from Florida, Chanel Clayton grew up on stories of her family's exodus from Cuba following the events of the Cuban Revolution. Somewhat related to that, the final strength I see in this book is that it's just very interesting in the way that it does this compare and contrast between the past and the present in Cuba. The reasons that revolution arose and the lasting consequences of Castro's rise to power. Now, I really don't know all that much about Cuban history other than the broadest outlines, as in, oh, it used to be a Spanish colony, then Castro took over, and I especially don't know all that much about present-day Cuba, which means that I can't verify or vouch for the accuracy of the information that the author is presenting to us, and I'm definitely open to further information or other viewpoints. But I do think that the author does put a lot of nuance, a lot of thought, into how she talks about Cuba, its history, and how it got to its present-day situation. And I think that she especially does a good job of talking about how people like her family who left Cuba and their relationship to present-day Cuba, or rather, how that relationship doesn't actually exist. For example, here's Lewis talking to Marisol. You cannot live in a museum, Marisol. The problem with your preservation is that it fails to account for the fact that there is a real Cuba, a living, breathing Cuba. You're all so busy fighting imaginary ghosts in Miami while we're here bleeding on the ground, dealing with real problems. Your exile community isn't concerned with the black market or the housing shortage or the very real flaws in the much-touted education system or the fact that racial discrimination occurs on a daily basis. You're still pissed because your grand mansions were taken away and are now occupied 
by the very men you hate the most. The rest of us are caught in the middle, worrying about how to survive. Or there's also this conversation that Marisol has with Christina, Lewis's ex-wife. You come here and you spend a few days in Cuba and tell yourself you've fallen in love, that you're saving Lewis. And then you return to your nice, safe life in America, far away from all this. You say you want to be Cuban. Her hands wave in the air, the cigarette dangling between her fingertips, ash falling to the ground. This is what it means to be Cuban. To be a woman in Cuba is to suffer. What do you know of suffering? I don't. Not like this. What would you have me do? I ask. Nothing. I wouldn't have you do anything. But you're all complaining about how you lost your country. And the reality is, you didn't lose your country. You left. You left the rest of us in hell. And now he's leaving right alongside you. Would you rather have him stay here and die? My frustration isn't with Christina. It's with this whole situation. But at the moment, she's voicing the things I fear the most. She takes a drag of her cigarette. No. Then what would you have me do? I ask again. You don't want him to leave, but he cannot stay. So what solution is there? Her smile mocks me. Is that what it's like in your world? Do things get wrapped up in pretty little bows and happy endings? There's definitely this sense that it's not just Marisol the character, but the author herself trying to puzzle out how exactly she fits into Cuba's present not just its past. So, I do think that this book, Next Year in Havana, does have its strengths, and I can certainly see why people were so hyped about it when it first came out. It was definitely in the right place, in the right time, and it had a lot of love and effort put into its creation. But, but, there is one central problem with this book, from which all of the other problems in this book stem. And that is that this author, say it with me, cannot write romance. Yes, we all knew I was going to go there. She just cannot write romance, but she made it the emotional core of the book. And the result is, to put it mildly, kind of a disaster. I've often talked about my frustrations with the way that romance is written, and I think that this is a good opportunity to go a little deeper into what makes a romance poorly written, what makes a romance not work. I haven't explicitly done this segment in a while, so let's bring it back. I'm talking, of course, about our writing workshop segment, and this week's focus is going to be how not to write a romance. So, the central romance in this book is between Alyssa the sugar heiress, Marisol's grandmother, and Pablo, a revolutionary. Now, what the author is attempting with this romance is, of course, a classic Romeo and Juliet, forbidden love, star-crossed passion kind of romance, which is great. It, it is a classic for a reason, but it is also difficult to pull off 
in the case of Romeo and Juliet, for example, the love story only really works because they're young, they're reckless, they haven't yet been inculcated with their parents' worldview. But also, most importantly, most fundamentally, the underlying conflict is absurd. These two families, the Capulets and the Montagues, hate each other for no real reason. And that is kind of the point of the story, right? This entire conflict is stupid and harmful, and the two families learn this lesson at a terrible price. But when we look at Alyssa and Pablo's respective circumstances, the situation is a bit different to say the least. Pablo comes from a working class background, a family who really struggles under Batista's regime. So Batista was the person who held power in Cuba before Castro. Alyssa comes from a sugar dynasty and her family not only benefits from Batista's regime, but is actively helping to prop it up. But even more importantly, by the time they first meet, Pablo is already involved in the revolution. And he's not just involved, he is one of Castro's right-hand men. Alyssa is already frightened of the bombs going off in random places. She's already afraid of what this unrest will mean for her and her family. There's a divide here that is ideological, that is political, but that's also foundational to who they are. It's not Alyssa's fault that she comes from this family. It's not her fault that her family has built their generational wealth off of this sugar empire. It's not her fault that her family are staunch supporters of Batista. But she can't change that that is who she is. Her family and their wealth are a core part of upholding the status quo. And in many ways, they are the status quo that has harmed Pablo and which he feels impelled to fight against because he doesn't see any other way for things to improve. So you have Alyssa who has no real choice but to stick by her family and their protection. And you have Pablo who, of course, is willing to live and die for the revolution. How do you take these characters and make them believably fall in love? Honestly, I would have trouble doing it, but the only way is to make their connection so compelling, so inevitable, that you can't help but believe it. And that's just not what we get from this book. What we get is these two meeting at a party, they kind of speak to each other, but it's mostly just to be like, Gosh, I'm really attracted to you. Are you really attracted to me? Yes, I am. Let's meet up tomorrow. They meet up the next day. They again say almost nothing, but they have like this earth shattering kiss. And then from there on, everything is treated like one domino toppling the rest. Every time they have a conversation, though, it's only ever about how much they just don't agree how much Pablo despises everything about Alyssa's life and circumstances. Oh, and also, how can I forget how attracted this 
30-plus-year-old man is to this newly 19-year-old girl. Because the core of their connection isn't about their personalities or their worldviews or their interests. It's about lust, pure and simple. That's not an earth-shattering, world-shaking love. It's a fling that is heightened by the emotions of, you know, a literal war going on in the background. Why do these characters care so much about each other? Why are they willing to risk literally everything to be together? We have no idea. And it is so patronizing and emotionally dishonest to pull up what I know would be the author's excuse, which of course is the good old adage, well, love isn't rational, love isn't logical. Okay, I mean, sure, whatever. But love also isn't built from nothing. Love doesn't materialize out of thin air. Love is not magic, particularly in fiction, particularly in a book where the emotional core of the story revolves around this great love affair, particularly in a book that practically just is this love story, the romance has to make sense. You have to convince the readers that this is real, this is inevitable, this is fate, destiny, written in the stars. And it is true that in movies or other visual media, for example, there is a shortcut called chemistry. Two actors with amazing chemistry can sell a mediocre romance, like, for example, Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet in Titanic. The writing isn't the best. I mean, it's not terrible, but it, it is kind of mediocre, right? And the only reason you believe in their love, really, is because they just work so well together. And let's be real here, I'm pretty sure that's the kind of love the author had in mind when she was writing the book. But the thing is, that kind of instant cinematic love really only works when, you know, there are real people acting out the romance. But this is a book, a written medium, and you don't get that kind of shortcut. The way you sell a romance is primarily through the characters' communication and their internal lives. Your characters have to mesh. They have to connect. They have to make sense together. Maybe they struggle with the same fears or desires. Maybe they share similar emotional wounds. Maybe they just get each other in ways that nobody else does. Or maybe they just happen to cross paths at a moment in time where they need someone, anyone, to see them, to understand what they're going through. The point is, the bigger the obstacles to love, the more their personalities have to work together. The more they have to get each other, the more they need to need each other in ways that no one else satisfies. And that's just not how I can imagine anyone describing Alyssa and Pablo. Their personalities don't gel, their interests don't gel, 
Their worldviews absolutely don't gel. They never spend time together that isn't somehow connected back to the war, which is understandable, but it also means that we never see them together in moments that actually build emotional connection, that actually mean something in terms of building a relationship. It doesn't have to be as cheesy as a date montage in a rom-com, but you need them to bond over something that isn't how irresistibly attractive they find each other. Art or music or literature or broken families or whatever. It doesn't matter, but you absolutely need something. The only real reason the author gives Alyssa for loving Pablo is that she likes his idealism. But first off, that doesn't make any sense because his idealism means the end of her world as she knows it, which we know is not what she wants. Marisol literally tells us that Alyssa spent all the rest of her life in Miami reminiscing over the life she lost in Cuba. The parties, the mansion, the luxuries. She actually really loved those things. Never mind that she got all of those things back in Miami. That's still what she primarily hated Castro for. But second off, admiring someone's idealism can't be the beginning and end of love. You have to know them on a human level, understand them as a person. And as for why Pablo loves Alyssa, that's even more confusing and frankly kind of improbable. He can't engage with her on an intellectual level. He despises who she is on a human level and he really is only interested in her because she is 19 and beautiful and unattainable. Again, this man is almost 40. Gross. Just gross. But more importantly, it's also so shallow and superficial as to be absolutely laughable that we are supposed to believe This is one of the great love stories in history. A love story that we are supposed to swoon over and cry over and just in general emote over. The only thing I felt while reading their supposed love scenes was annoyance, quite frankly. I just wanted the parts about their love story to be over. But of course, it never really is over because it turns out that Pablo is alive. And here's where the book loses me entirely. The book seems to be insistent that we need to root for the love story. We need to root for Pablo. And therefore, we need to root for Pablo even after it's been revealed that he has spent his life being a key member of Castro's government. We need to believe that he is a good person, no matter what he's done. And the nicest thing I can say about that is, frankly, it's absurd, it's ridiculous, it's annoying, and here is why. 
So throughout the book, we are told that modern day Cuba is still authoritarian. It's still a dictatorship. It's still a country, most importantly, with a lot of suffering and poverty. And the ultimate proof of this is when Lewis is suddenly arrested because he has been openly critical about the government online. And here is Pablo himself talking about how terrible the government is. Straight from the horse's mouth, everyone. What's happening with Lewis? I ask. They're attempting to charge him under social dangerousness, my grandfather replies. What does that mean? The people who have been tried under the charge have been imprisoned for several years. Occasionally, the government will go for something a bit lighter, like house arrest. But in this instance, that's the best case. The law allows the government to detain someone if they think they may commit a crime in the future. They have applied it against descendants in the past, and that's what they're aiming for in this case. Because he works at the university, their concern is his influence over his students, his opportunity to organize them, to create a movement against the government. My grandfather sighs. At the moment, he's being held in a cell alone, but when he's in prison, things can happen. He's not safe there. I had hoped he would be released by now, but I fear things are worse than I imagined. What can happen to him? People get into fights. People are killed. Even before he's in prison, things will be dangerous. His voice lowers to a whisper. People disappear, have the misfortune to be involved in a car accident on their way home. This is not America. Once you are in the regime's sights, you are not safe. If they think he's dangerous enough, they will do whatever they have to in order to silence him. That is what I call, um, not great for human rights. In fact, human rights who? Not, not finding it around these parts, apparently. Again, I'm just going off of what this book is saying. Also, Pablo himself has clearly benefited from this regime. Here is Marisol's impression of his house. My grandfather's stature in life seems to have changed quite a bit from that of the staunchly middle-class lawyer described in his letters and his home as in far better condition than his compatriots. Some are more equal than others. Animal Farm is a nice touch, but, um, what? <laughs> this is the firebrand revolutionary everyone whose idealism was what made Marisol's grandmother fall in love with him. Clearly, he has changed. And yet, and yet, will you believe it when I tell you that this book tries its utmost to defend Pablo and make him seem like a nice guy? Here, for example, is Pablo defending himself. How can you stay? I ask Pablo. How can you support what they're doing? I'm grateful for his help, but I can't reconcile the man who seems to have such a good heart with a government official involved in such corruption. You have to know this is wrong. Is it better to stay and become part of the system or leave and be considered a traitor? My grandfather replies. A worm? I do not know. If I leave, what will change? If I stay, what will change? I have tried to be a counterbalance 
to some of the more extreme notions that have arisen over the years, tried to preserve the rule of law. This is my home, imperfect though it is. I have to believe, hope, there is still some good I may do, some change I may effect to help Cubans. That has to be enough now. I do not begrudge those who live abroad now, who found the situation such that they could not stay. Please do not judge me for the fact I cannot leave. You're still fighting. I am. Revolutions are for the young. When I could, I fought for what I believed in. But I'm an old man now. The older you get, the more you realize that change, meaningful, lasting change, doesn't always come with violence and bloodshed, but with reform, however slow, however gradual. When I was young and rash, I believed the only way to defeat Batista was to kill him, to take his country and government away from him by force. But now? The problem with revolution, with the wave of violence it carries with it, is that it's like a flash flood. It sweeps everything away and nothing looks the same as it once did. And you think this is good. Change was what you wanted in the first place. Change was what you needed. But suddenly, you have a country you must govern. People whose basic needs must be met. You must stabilize a currency and create a legal system and reform a constitution. These are not the things young men dream of. They dream of dying for their country, dream of honor in battle. No one dreams about sitting at a desk and arguing over phrases. But those words, those laws, that infrastructure is everything. Without them, no government can succeed. I am not blind to what my countrymen are suffering, Marisol, or the problems that exist. But I am here with my pen. The revolution we need will be fought by those arguing over words, phrases, passing legislation and loosening restrictions. Men willing to sit at a table and discuss the things we've been afraid to address for many, many years. I am meant to be here to finish what I started and hopefully to be part of that change for my family, for my country. That's the gap between him and my grandmother. She could not have lived in the world he created and he could not leave it. And the thing is, this defense works on Marisol. She goes back to Miami and starts making plans for her family to meet with Pablo because now she wants to reunite them and play happy family. And this defense is supposed to work on us, the readers, as well. But the argument Pablo makes is absurd on the face of it, right? The entire point of authoritarian governments is that it doesn't matter what the laws or the constitution say. The entire point is that the people in charge can do whatever they want. They can't be limited by the letter of, of the law. Pablo's argument is kind of like a Nazi politician saying, well, I was only participating in the government because I was trying to fix things. I, I mean, sure, it's not like I was actually able to stop the concentration camps or anything, but I sure tried. I'm sure me writing laws saying concentration camps bad made some kind of difference. It, it curbed some of the extremism. That's not how dictatorships work. And if you are literally part of the dictatorship, if you are literally benefiting from it, hello, nice house, then you can't sit there and pretend that you're still a good person. And Pablo is being presented to us in that way, an essentially good person just caught up in an impossible position, 
which is so laughably silly that I'm I'm having a hard time believing that I'm expected to take this seriously. And now I'm going to round out this discussion of the so-called romance by presenting to you one of my pet peeves when it comes to these types of stories. So Alyssa fled to Miami and almost immediately married her husband, Juan. And here she is reflecting on her marriage. Historical fiction readers, I'm sure you already know where this is going. Juan takes my hand, his fingers linking with mine. I love you, he says, his gaze on our son. I love you too, I answer, the habit of the words comforting. And I do love him. It's not blazing fire or mighty flame. It's steady, true, strong. There's peace in his love, and I've had enough war to last a lifetime. He's a fine man, a good husband, an excellent father, a bulwark against the madness of the world. I hate this trope. I hate it so much because it always happens in these types of epic, all-consuming, star-crossed love stories. I lost the love of my life, and now I'm stuck with this handsome, rich, successful, steady guy who is um, probably better for me in every way, but I'm still going to spend the rest of my life thinking about the original guy because I could never possibly actually love anyone else. No, no. I only kind of love this guy. Never mind that he's like the nicest, most amazing, most well-rounded guy ever. Never mind that he's the best husband and father ever. He's he's just not good enough, you know? He he doesn't measure up. This is so unfair to characters like Juan that I could scream. This guy, he devotes his entire life to this woman and her child, and she is so ungrateful that it's unbelievable. And it's also completely unrealistic. Love, real love, isn't about passion or lust or flings. It's about the people who stick by you, who support you, who choose you over everything else. Pablo ultimately chose Cuba and Castro, and good for him, I guess, but Juan chose Alyssa, and she still treats him like a second choice, like he'll never be good enough, and that is so selfish. So yeah, there's everything I didn't like about this book. Next year in Havana, and now I'm going to wrap up this discussion with how I think it could have been better. So, first off, for a reading experience that is similar to this story, but much better executed, I would highly recommend a different book that I read for the Reading Around the World Challenge, and that is Fruit of the Drunken Tree by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Similarly to Next Year in Havana, Fruit of the Drunken Tree focuses on an affluent Colombian family who are ultimately forced by political unrest to flee to the United States. Like with Next Year in Havana, Fruit of the Drunken Tree is very nuanced in its depiction of the country's economic and political situation. And like Next Year in Havana, 
the protagonist of Fruit of the Drunken Tree, a young child named Chula, forms a connection with a less economically advantaged person who also has differing political views. The first and most obvious difference between the books is that Fruit of the Drunken Tree is a much more (laughs) grounded book. Next year in Havana is, for lack of a better phrase, emotionally extravagant and very much gone with the wind. It talks about Alyssa's family in terms of jewels and dresses and trips to Paris and Pablo's views in terms of abstract ideas like building a better Cuba without really delving into what that means or what that would entail. In Fruit of the Drunken Tree, however, Chula has a TV and a house with doors, and Patrona, the family's maid, lives in a shack with no doors, where the most common meal is bread and soda. Speaking of Patrona, instead of a sweeping romance, the emotional bond here is between Patrona and Chula, a kind of sisterly bond that is tested and ultimately broken by the world in which they live. It's a bond that's nurtured over time and is grounded in Chula's similarity to Patrona's little sister, Aurora. Patrona feels protective towards Chula, and they also bond over TV shows and fashion magazines and adorable drawings. These are two children forced to grow up very quickly, and it's heartbreaking to watch them grow closer, knowing that it can't last, that because of their socioeconomic differences, Chula will escape Colombia and Patrona cannot. When you read these two books, you can really see which book is grounded in its historical context and which book is ultimately a fantasy that is hard to take seriously. But that's not to say that Next Year in Havana couldn't be salvaged. As I've already indicated, Pablo is the weakest link in the book and... Here is what I think could have produced a much stronger story. So first, we cut Pablo out entirely, okay? He never existed. He has been wiped from everyone's memories. And instead, we focus on two really interesting relationships that I think should have been the central focus of the book. The first relationship is Alyssa's relationship with her best friend, Anna. Anna grew up in the same neighborhood as Alyssa, but her family did not flee, which led to years and years of suffering. Marisol stays at Anna's house when she visits Cuba, and Louis, her love interest, is Anna's grandson. I think it could have been really interesting to explore further how Anna feels about Alyssa leaving, the regrets that she must have, and more importantly, what their relationship was like. Anna is Alyssa's best friend, but she's barely there in Alyssa's story. She's basically a prop labeled best friend. And I think that's a shame. I love exploring complicated friendships between women, and I think that's much more interesting than a poorly executed romance. 
The second relationship is Alyssa's relationship with her brother Alejandro. Alejandro left the family to join the revolution. And again, he is barely there in the story. He shows up a couple of times and then gets unceremoniously killed off. Cutting out Pablo and instead focusing on Alejandro gives you a revolutionary character it makes sense for Alyssa to care about even when they don't agree because families do often have complicated relationships and yet they often can't escape the fact that they're still family. And again, this could be a much more emotionally compelling angle to focus on rather than the stupid romance. Maybe have Alejandro survive, see what happens from there. Honestly, anything is better than Pablo and his so-called romance with Alyssa. But really, the core problem here isn't so much to do with this book, Next Year in Havana in particular. It's more so an issue endemic to historical fiction centered on women. Romance is too often seen as the easy way out, the way to instantly create interest and an emotional connection. There really isn't enough focus on how difficult it is to effectively write romance, how difficult it is to make your readers care about your characters falling in love. At this point, the romance is a cliche, the expected story arc, what people are expecting to read. And really, I just want to release writers from that expectation. Write romance if you want to, but don't write it because you think that's what you should be writing. You're going to get a mediocre love story, and trust me, we have more than enough of those. Write about friendships, write about families, write about parents or siblings or literally any other kind of relationship. Whatever is most interesting to you as a writer is going to be what we, your readers, also find most interesting. Overall, Next Year in Havana is a book that I really wanted to enjoy and I did enjoy parts of it, but as a reading experience, it honestly ended up being more disappointing than anything else. All right, those are all of my thoughts on next year in Havana. And this wraps up this week's episode. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me and I will be back next week at 2AM. Until then, have a great week and happy book travels. Uh -huh.